This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome everybody, my name is Bryce from Equity Mates. This is Alec or otherwise known as Ren on the show if you are part of the Equity Mates community and we're joined by co-founder of Beta Chase, Elon. Thank you for joining us. You know, this is a fantastic night for all of us and we're really excited to be having our first live virtual event for 2020. So looking forward to getting stuck into all things ETFs. Before we do our intros and get into a bit of the mechanics of the night, we thought we'd start with a quiz. Given that uh, we've got some merch to give away here somewhere, we thought we'd throw it out to you guys. Some equity match shirts. Nice. Sweet. <laughs> OG. And some beta shares as well. <laughs> so to answer the quiz, all we need you to do is type the answer into your chat box that you'll be seeing in your screen at the moment. First person to chat through the correct answer will be the lucky winner of our shirts and uh, cups. The question is... How many exchange-traded products are there currently on the ASX? We'll give you a few minutes to think about that. Google it if you want, but remember it is the first person. <laughs> so the agenda for tonight, as we said, this is going to be a wide-ranging discussion on all things ETFs. We're here with the experts. We've taken in your questions from the last sort of two weeks, and we're going to be covering a number of topics, primarily driven by what you've been sending in. We will be having a Q&A session at the end of the evening. So if you do have any questions during the night, then put them in your question box and we'll be answering some of them at the end of the evening as well. So there will be prizes for people who submit questions. So shall we get into the discussion? Well, before we do, we want to be driven by uh, what you guys want to hear about. We've grouped a lot of uh, your questions and there was an overwhelming majority for building an ATF portfolio that was a really strong uh, theme that came through. So we want to kick it off with that, but then we want to be directed by you in terms of what we talk about. So the other themes that we talk about, we're going to release a poll in a second, and we want you to vote on what we talk about, because this is really all about answering your questions and helping you build your knowledge. So you should see that poll come live any second now. There are five uh, different categories to choose from. Pick whichever one you want to hear us talk about, mainly Elan talk about, yeah. <laughs> and we will be driven by you. Just so you all uh, are aware, we're going to have three key discussion points, building an ETF portfolio, and then whatever you guys vote for, 
and then we'll open it up for a more general Q&A at the end. So hopefully through the night, whatever questions you have, what you really want to hear answered, what you want to learn about, uh, you get a chance to hear us discuss it. Nice. So you should see the five uh, themes in front of you now. Comparing ETFs, ETF mechanics, so all things pricing, fees, distributions, international ETFs, currency hedging, tax, those sorts of things, geared and short funds, and then thematic funds that are tied to some of the key themes that we're seeing in markets at the moment, robotics, AI, marijuana, all sorts of things. <laughs> nice, so we'll close the poll now, and it looks like we have comparing ETFs and or just coming in international oh, ETFs, wow. <laughs> which is good because uh, Alec is really not keen on talking about ETF mechanics. <laughs> now, before we do get stuck into the first uh, topic of the night, which is building an ETF portfolio, uh, for those of you, of you who have joined us for the first time, we are the Equity Mates Investing Podcast. We aim to make markets accessible to the everyday investor. So please do join us on the show. And as I said at the start of the night, we have Elan here, who's co-founder of BetaShare. So Elan, do you just want to give a quick intro? Sure, yeah. My name is Elan. It's always a pleasure to be with you guys, uh, doing great work for the uh, investment community. I really appreciate making sure that people are understanding investing, which is really what we're all about. So as mentioned, I did co-found BetaShares. We're one of Australia's largest ETF issuers. We have around 65 ETFs now on the market. We started about 10 years ago been a great journey. So yeah, 65, which all are traded on the ASX. So all of our funds, you can buy and sell like any share. Uh, we're managing about $12.5 billion in assets. So yeah, we're excited to be here. Uh, love getting these types of things going and asking these types of questions. And yeah, we feel that, uh, we feel that we've got a lot, of, lot to share. So I'm looking forward to it. So if you do have a question for Elon, put it into your comments uh, section and we'll get to that later on in, in the night. He's here for, for you tonight. So please take the opportunity to ask him anything that you would like. Doesn't have to be ETF related, but you might not answer it. <laughs> that's right. He's a big shoe fan. That's right. Loves sneakers. So uh, anyway, Ren, do you want to kick it off? Yeah. All right. So we know uh, there's a lot of different experience levels on this webinar tonight. So we thought we would give Elon a softball uh, yeah. to kick it off. Yeah. So we're going to start by talking about uh, building an ETF portfolio. But I'm going to go back to basics 101. What is an ETF? Yeah, so an ETF, I like to sort of answer that question by talking about what it stands for. So ETF stands for Exchange Traded Fund. Fund. So Exchange Traded, the first part, that means it is exchange traded. You buy and sell it like a share. And anything that's bought and sold like a share has a few benefits to it, which is one, there's no minimum investment beyond what you know a broker might offer or an app might offer, but there's essentially no minimum investment. It also means you can buy and sell them anytime during the trading day. So very easy to buy and sell. And so that's the exchange traded component. And the fund component means for many people that it is diversified. So you're getting in a single trade, exposure to a diversified range of securities, stocks, whatever the case may be. So that's the fund component. So the benefits there are that it's diversified. There's actually also a, a structural benefit, which is that the fund structure is actually very investor friendly. Like there's a lot of protection from regulators and other bodies. So that's what the fund means. And um, so that's what exchange traded fund stands for. Now, the part that's not part of the acronym is that most ETFs are very known for being passively managed and index tracking. So index tracking means that in the best way as an example, I want to get exposure to the Australian ASX 200. I want to get exposure as simply as buying a share. I buy a single investment and on that basis, I get the largest 200 stocks in Australia via a single trade. So instead of choosing between the CBA or CSL, West Farmers, whatever the case may be, 
I buy the, in that case, A200 ETF, and I have exposure to the entire market at often a very low cost because we don't have to pay people to pick stocks. So that's really how I define an exchange trader fund. And it's around, or well, I can't say, I suppose I could say how many there are, but somebody's probably. I'm sure yeah, someone's got it right. I'm sure <laughs> Well, there's there exactly 240 ETFs on the ASX now, so a huge range. Huge. Uh, and yeah, that, that's, that's, what they, that's what it is. Yeah. And look, what we'll say, if no one got that answer right, you get the equity answer. <laughs> <laughs> Finally. <laughs> you did say 240 and you were the first one in. Uh, we'll make sure we say congratulations towards the end of the night. Now, Elon, you mentioned that 240 on the ASX. This question's coming from one of our listeners, and, and they say that given that how many ETFs are available, it can sometimes feel like they're picking stocks. Mm. How should you think about starting your ETF process in terms of, you know, where to start in the universe of ETFs? Yeah, it's a great question, and I can understand why with 240 ETFs, you could be pretty bamboozled by choice. And in that, in that regard, I guess it is like picking stocks, right? So but what I would say is because they're all quite diversified, there is a, quite a big difference, which means that in most part, the ETF you buy will be quite safe, relatively speaking, compared to buying a single share. But where do you start? I think you start always with asking yourself, why am I investing in the first place? And I imagine that for most people on this webinar tonight and listening in the future, you're probably trying to save up for something, maybe a deposit for a house or just develop a bit of a nest egg. And what that really means is that most people on this podcast, and I'm not going to generalize, I'm not sure who's on here, but for those people, it may be the case that they're, what they're really trying to do is build asset value or build capital up over time. Capital growth, we call it in investment land, right? So if that's the case, then there'll be certain types of ETFs that are more aligned with adding to your capital growth over time. And those are typically shares-based ETFs. Shares typically are known to be those things that add you know, capital over time. And that would also mean that, for example, you may not be that focused on generating an income out of this investment because you might be getting paid a salary at your job. So what that means is that you'd rather, if that kind of hypothetical person, you'd rather put money into something that will grow over time. So that's an example of making a decision as to why do I want to invest. Then you think about how long am I going to invest for? Is this a tactical decision? Is this, is this something I'm trying to do over the long term? Do I want to add to it every month or every fortnight? Again, if that's the case, for most people, you know, you have to ask yourself, what, why are you doing that? Are you doing it to become the core of your portfolio, which grows over time? Or are you actually already invested in a few shares and you want to diversify by getting some, for example, international ETFs? So with everything, you have to work out why you're doing it. And then it's going to be an ETF for that purpose. So again, if I'm just looking to get started in the market, maybe I'll just buy a couple of very simple exchange-traded funds that are passively managed, very broad market indices like NASDAQ 100 or Australia 200 or MISCI World or S&P 500, which is another sort of code word for the US versus the world versus Australia. And then on the other hand, I might be looking to do something more tactical because I really like the particular theme or the moment of robotics. So there's enough there for everybody. And of course, we haven't even spoken about non, non-share ETFs, which I know you've spoken about a little bit in your hypothetical portfolio. The point is that there's enough there to make those decisions and you just have to know yourself and work out. Probably the only other thing I would say for people getting started is it's pretty helpful if you understand what's in the ETF. I was just going to say, yeah. So that's why we're getting so much interest in stocks like our ETFs, like our, you know, for example, NASDAQ ETF, which I know is a popular one amongst your community. NDQ. NDQ, because of course everybody knows Amazon and Facebook and Google. And so when they're investing in it, 
they kind of think to themselves, yeah, I can, I can see Amazon, Google, and Facebook doing well over the next 20 years. Yeah. A bit harder if you don't really understand what's in it. So I think, yeah, first of all, the process is understand yourself. Once you've understood yourself, work out if it's shares versus bonds versus whatever. Work out whether you want Australian or international exposures. Then, you know, usually try to pick something that's quite broad, unless you're trying to be tactical about it, in which case, by all means, you know, go to something more narrow. And make sure you understand what's inside that ETF. Look through the what we call it portfolio holdings. Super basic question, but where yeah. do you actually find that information as like in terms of holdings for an ETF? Yeah, so the thing is that with ETFs, again, I mentioned that they're quite investor friendly. Our uh, regulator and the ASX force, which we're happy to do, all ETF issuers to put the full portfolio holdings on, on our website. So you go to BetaShares website or another issuer's website. Look at the fund you're looking for. Look for the portfolio holding section, or sometimes it's just called holding section. Press on it, and you'll get like either Excel file or just a list yeah. of the stuff. Yeah. So, Ilan, I want to take it a step further. Even once you know yourself and you know what you want to invest in, I think that's great advice to help start filtering out all the different types of ETFs out there. When you decide what you want to invest in, be it you know Australia, the US, a specific theme. There's generally still some choice there. So for people who are still overwhelmed by, you know, the multiple ASX 200 indexes on the market or the S&P 500 indexes on the market, yeah. how do you decide what ETF is right for you and what, what factors should yeah. people be thinking about? So I guess if we assume that we're talking about two funds that are almost identical, so the first thing you have to do is even if you think they're very similar or the same, make sure you look at the portfolio because they might be a little bit different. Like ethical ETFs are a classic for this, right? Yeah. Like I'm buying an ethical ETF, but there can be a huge difference between all of them, right? But just assume that we are actually legitimately talking about two exactly the same or extremely similar exposures. Let's say, for example, you know, the Australia 200. There are a number of funds out there offering exposure to the largest 200 stocks in Australia. We've got one called A200. There's others out there that you mentioned before. What do you look at then? Mm. Well, first of all, you should look at making sure that you've got a reputable manager behind it. I mean, the good thing is that there's sort of a few, a handful of very large managers in Australia that I think everyone can be comfortable with. Uh, we feel we're one of them, but there's others as well, definitely. So number one, you make sure the manager's reputable. You have to look at fees next. If we're yeah. saying they're identical to each other, you have to look at fees. And you guys have been driving that home very hard in some of your work you've done. Because if they are truly identical, the only thing you can control is the fees. Yeah. So there's not that many situations where they're identical, but if they are identical, then fees really do matter. And not just the management fee, which is obviously this thing that people ask, how does the management fee come out? Do you actually pay the money? So I'll just answer that question. You don't pay any money. It essentially just comes out of your price every single day, a tiny, tiny amount. So, it's, you know, you don't detect it, but it's coming out. Mm -hmm. So our the lowest cost Australia 200 ETF is, is actually 0.07% a year, which is 70 cents for every $1,000 you invest a year. So pretty small. Yeah. So that divided by 365 comes out every day. <laughs> That's tiny, tiny, tiny. So, so, so cost is, but don't just look at that management cost. Also have a bit of a look at what we call the bid and offer spread. Now we're getting a little more technical, but what we're talking about there is the difference between when you look in the ASX market and you're on your brokerage account, the difference between the buy, the bid and the offer, as we call it, the buy and the sell. And just check if it's too, how wide it is, and that will give you, because that's actually a cost that you, that you pay. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, so, so that's the thing. But in most cases, I'd say, Ren, they don't actually have too many situations where they're identical to each other. Yeah. Yeah. Which brings sort of the next question that often comes in, Elon, is around ETF overlap and understanding 
and, and maybe we'll merge the two questions sort of before moving on to the next topic, but yeah. overlap of ETFs and how many ETFs is too many yeah. in a portfolio. You, you know, I can think, for example, the A200, which you mentioned, but then also ATEP, yeah. which is your technology, tech, technology sector. sector. There's yeah. obviously going to be an overlap of companies between those two. How do you think about constructing a portfolio with that in mind? Yeah, great question. And again, luckily, the answer is to go back to understand what's in it. So it is quite important. I think the ATEC A200 example is actually one scenario where there's not that much overlap at all. Uh, but a better example would be the US market. There's been a lot of talk about, and we're recording this on the 11th of August 2020, just to put a date stamp to it. There's been a lot of talk about how much of the US market is currently made up of those top five stocks. Right. Just massive, yeah. right? Apple, I'm probably getting it wrong, but it's Apple, <laughs> Amazon, Google, you know, Alphabet, whatever, Microsoft, and Facebook. Facebook. Right, so those five stocks now make up a bigger proportion of the US market than ever before. So talking about overlap, buying, for example, today an S&P 500 ETF and the NASDAQ ETF, if you did that thing and you downloaded all the holdings and you added it up, you'd see you're very heavily exposed to those five stocks. You'd be essentially doubling up. That would not necessarily make a huge amount of sense. And in that scenario, you might want to choose one rather than the other. Like, for example, if you want to have a more technology-oriented exposure, then you choose a NASDAQ. If you just want the full U.S. market with a whole lot of tech that goes with it, then you choose the S&P 500 ETF. So, yeah, I think you have to look pretty carefully in those cases. And it's particularly relevant in the big end of town. The big end of town is where you see a lot of overlap. Mm. As it turns out, like the Australia technology sector is actually not heavily overlapped with our Australia 200 because only things like Afterpay are really big enough to make it into yeah. 200. Yeah. A lot of the companies in, this, in our Australian technology sector ETF are actually quite small. So there's a scenario where you actually can validly buy both and get exposure to the Australian market plus some technology to go with it. But to answer your second question, Bryce, which is around how many is too many, yeah. I think it's a great question. Look, I think for most people, just a few low-cost simple ETFs is actually enough. Okay. Particularly what you're trying to do is building up like a really strong low-cost foundation. So if you, that's your starting point, you know, if you think about it, for somebody who's got 15, 20 years of investment ahead of them before yeah. they have to take the money out, they're probably happy to go just essentially almost all share ETFs. I mean, this is not financial advice, and I should say that, like everything I say is absolutely not financial advice. Because <laughs> I'm going to have my lawyer come to the Yeah, lawyer too, yeah. Yeah, But for most people, if you just, for example, were to focus on Australian shares, US shares and global shares and emerging markets as four at best, you probably get a pretty strong foundation. So that says that if that's what you're trying to do to get started, over-egging it is actually probably not that helpful. However, you know, once you've actually got a core of shares in your portfolio, or once you've got a core of those ETFs, I think it's reasonable to add what we call satellites to your investment which are tactical decisions around, hey, I've actually got a really strong view on the Australian technology sector to mm -hmm. use ATEC or the cybersecurity sector to use HACK as an example, right? So yeah, I really like the cybersecurity sector. I can see that what I've got on my core really doesn't speak to that at all because the cybersecurity sector is quite specific. I really believe it's a foundation of investing, uh, I'm sorry, of technology because you can't have technology without cybersecurity anymore. Then maybe then as a satellite, I'd add one or two tactical things like that. So mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So I think the key is really understanding what's in the book, in the ETFs before making those sorts of decisions. Yeah. Yeah. You can yeah. find yourself trying to be too cute in some instances. Totally. Totally. 
So I think that leads nicely onto the next section that we want to talk about, the winner of the poll, which was comparing ETFs. And we touched on this before, but I'm interested to not talk about management fees because we talked yeah. uh, talked about them a fair bit yeah. before. Yeah. Yeah. So other than management fees, what are some of the key factors you would consider when comparing different ETFs? Yeah. So I spoke about management fees and I also spoke about just making sure that you've got a strong manager right. behind the ETF. And I also said that most of Australian ETF managers are quite strong. Not all, but most of them are quite strong, particularly yeah. the top three. Bryce tried to launch an ETF and it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the line. <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And look, what I'll just say as well, because again, obviously, you know, I've been doing this for 10 years and I also know what questions are asked. Just on that topic of a strong manager, interestingly enough, even though it would be annoying, you know, if a manager that you invested in was to go under, it actually doesn't really mean that you lose any money. Mm. Because I mentioned that the fund structure is quite investor friendly. And that is that that the assets of the ETF are not held by BetaShares or Vanguard or BlackRock. They're owned by a third party custodian whose whole job it is is to protect those assets, to ring fence it from ourselves. Mm. So anyway, that, that's an aside. But I, yeah, I think that's a really important point because yeah. I think a lot of people worry about that. You know, there's a ETF provider and then there's a custodian yeah. and like who owns it and stuff like that. So I, that, that was definitely something I thought when I started. And yeah. I think it's important. Yeah, we call that the separation of assets. So our $12.5 billion of assets are not on a beta share balance sheet. They're, mm. they're on a separate area, like, you know, separate accounts for each ETF and for the benefit of the unit holders, right? So if we were to go under, we would just, that custodian would appoint another ETF issuer and Bob's your uncle. Or worst case, they sell the assets and you get it back at the value of the assets. Anyway, yeah. So that's the issue of this. And look, I will apologise for all the drilling. drilling going on because uh, we're in the Sydney CBD where nobody's in the offices yeah. anymore. So people like that. Right. And, uh, and they're using the opportunity to upgrade every floor. So anyway, sorry about that. You're getting a bit of Yeah, so the issuer is one, fees is the other. I mentioned the bid and the ask spread. Looking at the, the, the difference between the bid and the offer and comparing that to what we call the fair value, there's actually a concept called INAV. So that the INAV is the indicative net asset value or essentially the true value of the underlying exposures. And those can, that can be seen in some cases on our website or on the ASX. So just seeing what the difference is between the price that is being offered and the market and that is a helpful component because that is another cost. But look, I mean, apart from that, as long as you understand it, yeah. What's what's in it? That's probably all there is to it. So just to recap for everyone, so there was really four four key things to look for. Number one is are they actually the same? Look under the hood, look on the website, understand what how the ETFs are actually built. Number two is the issuer, are they reputable, you know, are they trustworthy, are they properly regulated? Number three was management fee, and number four was bid ask spread. And if you get through all four and you can't find any differences, <laughs> you might be comparing the same product. Yeah. <laughs> We're speaking of, I mean, looking at the bid ask spread and finding that value there. Is it possible to value an ETF like you would a normal stock? Is that a process that someone should think about taking? Yeah, I think for most long-term investors with very long time horizons, you know, and the idea to continue averaging into your investment over time, I think it's probably a little bit of overkill in many respects because as it is, you, you said to yourself, I've got this long time horizon and I'm going to be averaging in over time. So does that mean I have to value it each time I do it? So I think for most people who have that kind of a mindset, it can be you know, a little bit of an overkill and may not be needed. Mm. Uh, for example, if you take the most recent crash we had, like in March, 
you could have sat there trying to work out what the right value to, to buy any particular share might be or, or, or any ETF. But the point is, if you bought it at any time during that period, you would have done so well given the huge rise we've had. So getting too cute about that for most investors is a step too far. Yeah. But for those who usually look at those types of things and they're used to that kind of fundamental, we call it fundamental analysis, and they look at things like price to equity and yeah. ratios like that, which is essentially, you know, how much you're, you know, what's the price of your stock versus, you know, how much you've actually got in terms of your earnings, price to earnings ratios and price to book ratios. You can absolutely can do it with ETFs. We, as BetaShares and other ETF issuers, publish that information on our fact sheets. You know, you could do it yourself if you really feel like it. You can download everyone and look at it. Most people, they can see on the fact sheets what the price to earnings ratio is, et cetera. Now, you can do it. I just think that for most people who aren't looking to make one single bet at a yeah. single time, it may not be that useful. Yeah. But certainly, if the answer to your question is yes, it can be done. Can be done. I think another way that people might think about valuing ETFs that I'd be interested in you expanding on is some other funds are structured so the value that you buy it at is different to the net asset value right. and there can be a divergence. Right. And right. for people who are familiar with them, um, listed investment companies is one. And ETFs are structured differently, and that, that really doesn't come into play as much. So exactly. maybe can you explain that, that side of Yeah, that? well, that's a huge benefit of ETFs. So with shares or listed investment companies, you've only got a certain number of shares outstanding, we call it. Like the only way you can have more shares is by either doing a capital raise yeah. and issuing more shares or by, you know, by reducing the number of shares, like some sort of consolidation. So that means that you're always buying and selling other people. And essentially, when you buy more, the price goes up, and when you sell, then the price goes down. Now that does not simply occur in ETFs because we run an open-ended structure. There's not a limit to how many shares or units we call them. There's not a limit to how many units there are in each individual ETF. So what that means is that if we have more demand than we have supply, we simply just create more units. And so what that basically means is that the price of the ETF has no bearing on how many people buy and sell it. In other words, to put it starkly, and it's been, we've seen it, there can be a situation where everyone is selling an ETF and nonetheless the price still goes up and vice versa. There's no relationship between mm. the two mm. because of the fact they're open-ended. So I think what you're saying is some people like to think about what is that discount to fair value? Yeah. And if it's, low, if it's very, very big, maybe I'll buy it because it'll become an opportunity in the future. That doesn't work in yeah. ETF land. Yeah. Yeah. In ETF land, you just have to have a view on the underlying shares value mm. and hopefully it's going to go up. And that's essentially the way in which you're making an investment. You may not get the discount, but on the flip side, you're not overpaying the net asset value. You're paying for the value of the underlying yeah. assets. That's the beauty of the ETF structure. Yeah, so people who buy Lix can be really disappointed because the value of the share is $100. And for whatever reason, it's out of favour. And so everyone's been selling it. And so on the market, it's been traded for $80. If you have to sell it tomorrow, you're essentially taking a 20% loss yeah. mm. or $20 loss in that case. Mm for no real reason other than the fact that there's been more selling than there has been buying. And that's something that we have dealt with in ETF structure, you know, for many, 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 for 20 years or however long ETFs have been around. So, yeah. So before we uh, move on to some of the international questions that have been coming in, Elon, it's probably worthwhile touching on some of the common risks that are associated with investing in ETFs. And yeah. there's a lot of positives. Yeah. What are some risks that we should be thinking about when investing in ETFs and perhaps some ways that we can implement and to reduce those risks? Yeah. Well, first of all, the number one risk, given what I've just said about how the 
ETF value is very similar to the value of the underlying exposures, is that if, if indeed the ETF was, for example, tracking Australian shares and Australian shares crashed by 20%, you should expect that your investment in the Australian shares ETF will also go down 20%. It's as simple as that. And so, so the biggest risk is the risk associated with the investment. You're investing in shares, it will obviously be the case that it will obviously be the case that there's a risk of those shares massively dropping, as they did in, in March. Of course, the opposite. <laughs> and then right back exactly. <laughs> so that's definitely by far beyond the number one risk. So that's the number one risk. How to mitigate that is obviously you just have to be comfortable with understanding that prices can go up and down. There's no way to mitigate it if you're in the market, unfortunately. You know, what you can do though is you can get diversification, yeah. which is why ETFs are so popular because you know, if you think about it, if I invest in the Australia 200 ETF, the whole market has to go down for the, you know, for, yeah. for the investment to go down. If I invest in Telstra shares and Telstra goes down on a single day, then I'm going to be hit 100% by that hit. So yeah. there's a diversification benefit. So really all you can do, quite honestly, is just know your investment. I think the other thing is that some ETFs have got a particularly high exposure to, for example, a particular country, which you may not be aware of if you haven't looked carefully or might have a particularly high exposure to a sector. So for example, again, just to use the Australian example, it's all Australia, so that's clear. Now that's obvious, that's what it says in the tip. We've actually got a super high exposure in Australian shares to banks and to the resources companies. So if you didn't know that, and you thought, hey, I've got Australia and everything's dandy, and the banks have a big crash for whatever reason, you know, you've got a high concentration to that. So Again, it comes back to just knowing what's inside and being comfortable that you have, for example, that high exposure to that sector. So, yeah. And then probably the only other thing I'd say is, is over trading. I don't know if it's a risk of ETF. It's a risk of behavior. Yeah. I think it's a behavior risk if you just continue trading things. You know, you are incurring brokerage each time. Yeah. And so just trading it for the sake of it, little small profits and losses can really erode your returns. Which is why, you know, I'm sure you've had people on your podcast talking about time in the market yeah. rather than time in the market. Again, too much trading, over trading, in my opinion, is, is not advised unless you have a real particular view on something. Yeah. That's why investing is so great for me because I'm notoriously lazy and so I don't, don't have a trade. Yeah. That's exactly right. Or so, and you yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think the, uh, the second risk that you touched on there is a really important one around what's actually in the ETF and understanding it. I know that when I first looked at the MSCI World Index, yeah. I wanted to diversify away from America where I own some ETFs there. And you look under the hood of that index and it's something like 70% is the US. Yeah. And so for me, trying to diversify away from the US, mm. I would have ended up buying a fund that was majority US. Totally. So yeah, I think you really got to dig deep. And yeah. I mean, it's not a lot of digging. You so yeah, at least have a look at what the country exposure looks like. Yeah. Maybe you'll be happy because the world is dominated by the US from the stock market point of view. So, mm-hmm. so guys, just before we move on to the final topic of the night and then into our live Q&A, just to remind you, you still can ask questions. Obviously, Elon is here for all things ETFs if you're after Hair product knowledge. Ask, <laughs> ask Ren. He's your man. Uh, and we do have a winner for the quiz that we can see on the screen now, which we'll answer right after this final topic. So, Ren, you want to kick off into international ETFs? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, international ETFs is front of mind for a lot of people. And I think one of the best things about the number of ETFs on the Australian market is how easily people can access 
foreign markets now. It's much easier than trying to find a broker that will charge you an arm and a leg to buy overseas shares yeah. directly. Yeah. So I guess maybe to start with, can you just give us an overview of international ETFs available in Australia and what Australian investors can access? Yeah, well, look, you're right. I mean, in many ways, one of the best use cases of ETFs is global share ETFs. Because as you say, it's notoriously difficult, expensive to buy overseas shares. The markets trade when we're asleep. Yeah. Currency changes. Yeah, yeah, all that stuff. So it's not set up for an Aussie. So in many ways, the beginning of the real growth of ETFs was international shares ETFs. And so as a result, there's a lot out there. So there's the broad world, as you mentioned, the misty world. You know, you can get exposure to the misty world if you wanted the whole world. There's country-specific ETFs, the US, Japan, Europe, China. We've got a FTSE 100, UK ETF. So that's countries. And then, of course, there's global sectors. We've spoken about some of those, you know, global sectors, things like global healthcare, the gold mining sector, global, the consumer staples sector, the uh, banks. The banks, yeah, the global banks, the global, well, we've got cybersecurity companies, et cetera. So, so there's a lot out there. And some of them, by the way, are currency heads and some of them aren't, which we'll probably get to. But look, the other one as well, just that is very, very relevant for Australian investors, and I'd be remiss not to talk about it, is the technology. Mm. Because notwithstanding how well we are growing our technology sector, we've had great exp- a great experience with Afterpay and um, Appen and Zero and they're called <laughs> you know, all these guys. Every time Bryce hears the word Afterpay, he has to celebrate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You traded that well, didn't you? Yeah. yeah, so they've been good, but at the end of the day, for an Australian investor, it's a very small part of the market. Mm. And so you really not, if you were to only look at local investing, Australian shares investing, you would actually not get really a truly strong technology exposure. And I know for many people, technology is such an important part of their life and the future. And so I think the one thing we've just seen huge interest in the beta shares is the growth of technology sector ETFs. The NASDAQ 100, you know, the largest 100 stocks in, you know, in, on, the, you know, on the NASDAQ exchange, all those big tech giants, the Asian technology kings, you know, we've got some uh, stock, uh, product in that space. Global robotics, global yeah. cybersecurity, exactly. So that's another example of something that's available out there. So there's a big range, you know, there'd be, I haven't counted how many of the 240 of international, but a good number, maybe 100. Yeah. I think I think the statistic that I just keep coming back to is the Australian market is 2% of the global market. And to yeah. what you were saying earlier, a lot of it is banks and mines. Like the ability to access some of the smartest people and some of the best companies in the world is, yeah. it's unprecedented the access we enjoy. Exactly. Do you yeah. think your exposure to international would be greater than 50% of your portfolio? Yes. What about you, Aaron? Yeah, it would be. It would be. I make it a rule to try and have, on the share side, I try to have you know, more than 50%. Yeah. Yeah. And I know your Afterpay holdings about 90% of the <laughs> but excluding Afterpay, would you be more than 50% international? Yeah. 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 Uh, to, to your point, the market size here versus what is available overseas. Yeah. Um, yeah. You'd be silly not to be yeah. involved. So, Elaine, you mentioned that currency hedging, and this has come through a lot from the community over the last couple of weeks. So, yeah. Uh, and I've noticed that you guys have also just released a couple of hedged yeah. NDQ and yeah. a couple of other products. Yeah. What is currency hedging and when should it be considered? So currency hedging is essentially taking out currency from the investment equation. So in other words, you want to invest in something that's overseas, but you don't want to have currency to be part of your return because in an unhedged currency return, of which, by the way, there's nothing wrong with, you have two components of your return. 
the performance of the underlying, let's use Apple shares, and the US dollar against the Australian dollar, mm. right? So for some people, that's actually a good thing because they want to get exposure outside of the Australian dollar and they consider the US dollar as part of the return profile. But for other people who have a very strong view that, hey, I just want to invest in the NASDAQ, but I want to make sure the NASDAQ, does, my return doesn't get affected by, you know, doesn't get affected by currency movement, that's where hedging comes in. So it's a very much a personal choice. Again, you know, some people play a tactical view on this where they say, look, I remember there was a time not that long ago where the US dollar, the Australian dollar was, you know, and the US dollar exchange rate was in the sort of 50s or 60s. Yeah. And so then at that point, people thought, well, hang on a second. Like, I'm more well and good to, you know, more well and good to take currency exposure, but it feels like, you know, the US dollar is going to rise again or the Australian dollar is going to rise, or whatever the case may be. And so you just want to make sure you, some people want to use that as part of their investment case. So you can have situations where the price of the, underlying international shares go up and the Australian dollar goes up at the same time. What that means, you've got two counter forces. Mm. So some people will, at a certain point, when the US dollar is at a certain point, they might decide to currency hedge. And that happened quite a lot recently, which is why we had brought out these hedge NASDAQ, et cetera. So that's what currency hedge for. But I think, again, studies have shown that over long periods of time, over long periods of time, funnily enough, and we're talking about long, long, like 20 years, Hedging or unhedging doesn't really matter. Yeah, it's yeah. fascinating. Like I've seen these charts done where you have like a US market hedge versus unhedge, and over time it all kind of comes out in the wash. But of course, if you're getting in at a time where you know where the market is in a particularly different environment, like where the US dollar is, you know, sort of very very weak or whatever the case may be, you, know, you might need to consider currency hedging. But yeah. So it's just another thing to consider though that you not only have to be thinking about the stocks you're bidding, but also what is going to be the relationship between the currency over a period of time. Yeah, yeah, and as I said. People can definitely validly say that as part of my international investing, like you said, 50% or more, I actually know as a fact that I have exposure beyond the Aussie dollar. And I want to because I'm earning Aussie dollars and I'm probably going to buy a house in Australian dollars. I actually want a different exposure. It's just a question of whether that's right or wrong. But there's nothing, there's no right or wrong. Some people do 50-50, but they just put 50% of their yeah, portfolio hedged, 50% unhedged. Mm -hmm. you know? So yeah, that's what it's all about. And they have been popular sort of exposures for people to take. Has, has it been more popular people wanting hedge, as in taking the risk out of currency, or people happy with the unhedged option? I think unhedged is still by far the most popular because yeah. people typically do have that long-term investment uh, method, uh, methodology. But again, when the Australian dollar, you know, is, is in, in a particular range, then it can be it can be appropriate. When will you release ones that are hedged against Bitcoin? I think maybe to wrap up the hedge and unhedged conversation, it might be important to stress whether you buy a hedged or unhedged version, that just affects how the currency is traded. The underlying holdings are exactly the same. Correct. So if Apple and Amazon and Facebook continue to run and you know become three trillion and four trillion dollar companies, yeah. if they're hedged or unhedged, you still have exposure to those companies. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Nice one. Well, we've got a bunch of questions that have come through, so we can get stuck into those. But first, I think, uh, Ren, we want to get the prizes back out for the winner of the competition. Elon, do you want to do the honours? Yes. Well, it looks like we didn't get anyone who answered it exactly correctly, <laughs> but, but we did get a very, very close answer, which was 238. And that was a guy by the name of Alex. 
Nice. Uh, or a girl by the name of Alex, as the case may be. Somebody named Alex is going to be taking <laughs> away that. Uh... Congratulations. We'll reach out to you and uh, get your details to send through some merch. And uh, we will also be sending some merch to the guys who have asked some of these questions. So let's get stuck in. Renny, you want to kick off? Yeah, so first question is, I, I like this question. It's, uh, it was got a lot of headlines a couple of years ago. Uh, so Michael Burry, who uh, people have seen the, the big short, would know, made a lot of money during 2008. GFC talked about the risks of ETFs and said that there was potentially a bubble. Mm. And so Lance has asked, basically, like, what do you think of that? ETFs are a big part of his portfolio and he's a little hesitant to continue down the ATF part when he hears Michael Barry say something like that. So we want to hear you go hard at Michael Barry. <laughs> we'll clip it, we'll put it online and we'll start a beta shares Barry thing. We've gone hard at Michael Barry so often, but look, you know, I think it might have been my grandmother who once told me that when somebody says something, you have to ask yourself why they're saying it. Are they saying it because they believe it or do they have a vested interest in saying it? Michael Barry is in the business of picking stocks, shorting stocks, long going long stocks. He makes his money by essentially telling people that he can beat the market, right? That's how he makes his money. The last thing he wants is for people to not invest in his style of investing and invest in passive investing. So he, unfortunately, is very conflicted in answering this question. I am also conflicted in answering the question because I'm an ETF guy. <laughs> but the good thing about this, Lance, is that you've got, you've got evidence on your side, and that's really the, all I can say. So the most recent period was the period where the virus affected markets in a major way. And it, it, there hasn't been a cure for the virus. But what it has cured, to use a very cheesy analogy, is Michael Burry's point. It has cured <laughs> it entirely because we've had a situation where ETFs were traded, markets were as volatile as they've ever been before in history, right? It's crazy, crazy volatile. And essentially, people were selling ETFs like nobody's business. There was a flight to sell, right? And there was a flight in, in stocks as well. But what happened, of course, is that you had a situation where people actually ended up buying ETFs at the bottom, ended up buying ETFs you know, at, at the time when things were going down because they realized there was an opportunity to make money, yet the market kept going down. It went to the opposite direction, right? That's right. So, yeah. so, so I think I the truth, ones, well. <laughs> I think the truth of the matter is that, that this has been cured by, by the facts. Like, there's no relationship between ETF buying and there's no relationship between ETF buying and the way the markets move. So that because the concept of a bubble, bubble should be that the more the more the ETFs get bigger, the more they're going to move markets. But they they've gone the opposite direction all the time. They always go in the opposite direction, right? So and they're much Australia net buying in ETFs markets go down. How can that happen if they're a bubble? And finally and very importantly, even if you don't take my word for that. Now, actually, the, the thing that changes our price is obviously what we call buying and selling when we are buying in the market. A lot of ETF trading is between you and me, and that doesn't touch the market at all. I'm selling you my ETF, but you're buying my ETF. So there's no market movement at all there. The actual amount of ETF trading that's done directly in the market, in a market as massive as the US, is no more than 4 or 5% of the total market. So for it to be a bubble, it needs to get so big that, that yeah. So, I think the truth is, anytime you see a situation where markets are going one way and ETFs are going the other, you kind of know this can't be true. Well, Lance, now you've got Michael's word and Elon's word. <laughs> <laughs> Do what you want with it. But you have just won yourself a t-shirt. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> so Kieran has asked, what are some of the ETFs BetaShares is looking to bring out in the next year? Yeah. 
We're definitely always keen to bring our new products. It's part of what we do. We've got 65. We've got the largest range of products in the Australian market, so we've got a very large range. But funnily enough, we still think there's more opportunity. We still think there's more opportunity. We really do. ETFs are, you know, are something that moves with the times. So an example of that is actually the ethical space. Nice. We have seen really strong demand in our ethical range of ETFs. FE is one of them, the biggest one. FAIR is another. So we've got over $1.5 billion in, in that. We've got wow. a huge market share of ethical ETFs. And um, the truth of the matter is that we think there's more to be done in that ethical space. Mm. So we'd like to see more stuff in that space mm. of all shapes and sizes. I think it's very, very important for us to have, you know, for us to have those types of exposures. You know, we think there's still more to be done. Global shares, ETFs, thematics. So we'll keep on going. Uh, we frontier, frontier stocks. Yeah, right frontier here. stocks. I mean, it's it's still very small. Yeah. But yeah, it's an interesting space. Right? So, yeah, Iraq. Iraq. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They can be incredibly performing markets. Yeah, right? yeah, but, yeah. But yeah, so liquid. for us, like, we just have to make sure that there's demand because we don't want to have an ETF that doesn't get any demand and we have to shut it down. Yeah. It does cost us money to have ETFs. So you need to make sure there's demand. You have to make sure that it's true to label. It's really important, right? So we've actually walked away from many things that people have thought were a great sexy thing because they're not true to label. So yeah, so an example is blockchain. Yeah. So the blockchain is everyone says we love a blockchain ETF, but the problem is there's not enough companies in the world that give you exposure to the blockchain as it's as defined. So in the end, you end up buying Nvidia and Amazon yeah. and, yeah. and so a tech. So it's not a true to label fund, and so we were look almost going to launch a fund there until we realize that it's just too early. So these are some of the things we think about. Where does sustainability lay on the true to label fund though? Like, because I, I can imagine that would be one that it's still sort of a gray area yeah. for a lot of companies. Yeah. It's an area that we feel we've really pioneered in actually, where we really want to make sure that when an investor who's looking for a sustainable investment approach looks at that portfolio we spoke about before and sees no stock in there that that's going to surprise them. And unfortunately, there are a lot of ethical ETFs out there that are not like that. They just call it ethical ETFs. There was one launch, I won't name names, there was one launch very recently, and it literally looks like almost identical to the ASX 200, owns BHP and Rio and, and stocks like that. And I think for most people, when they think about ethical climate-oriented investing, they don't want to have mining in there. Mm. So what we did when we launched our two funds in the ethical space to begin with is we decided to be really true to label, get rid of a whole lot of things, even though the experience for an investor would be quite different to investing in the in the underlying market. So that's a long answer to, to, uh, to Kieran's question. What about keep, a, keep, keep, keep an eye out and obviously subscribe and you'll be able to see what we launch next. Interviewed you on the podcast a little while ago and you told us you ran a competition for people to come up with ETF ideas and you told us that the winner recommended an ETF of exchanges yeah. around the world, which I thought was a great idea. Is that in the pipeline? Well, look at it. I mean, there's not that many exchanges because you basically have to buy the stocks of exchanges. So ASX, for example, yeah. is, an exchange, is, a, is, a, is a stock. So there's not that many, but it's a great idea. And that person won our stu- It's a grant. Like it's a study grant. And if you're a university student, if anyone's out there, they should absolutely apply. Go to our website and apply. You get a reasonable amount of money. I think it was $5,000 um, for the winner. Well, so I yeah, hope they invested that in ETF. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So, yeah, no, so I mean, look, we, we'll look at all. We really will look at everything. And by all means, like for the viewers out there and listeners, please send through your ideas because we take in those ideas all the time. So yeah, you're right, Yeah. So uh, the next question came in from Daniel, and he asks, "Are ETFs liquid enough if you need to exit?" And maybe for people who are unfamiliar with the uh, term liquid, maybe just a quick definition as well. Yeah. So liquid means that you can buy and sell when you want. 
liquid, you know, like this liquid. You can buy and sell it, like it moves around, you can you can do what you want with it. That's what liquid means. Now, the one word answer to Daniel's question is yes, they are liquid enough if you need to exit. The slightly longer version of that answer is that one very important part of our ETF structure is that if you see a certain amount of trading on the market for a stock in a day, BHP trades X million dollars a day, that's how much there is to buy and sell. With ETFs, if you see, for example, a new ETF only has done 100,000 of trading in the day, that doesn't mean that you can only trade 100,000 a day. Because of that open-ended structure I mentioned before, if we need more units to be offered, we simply just, and this is where the market makers come in, and we may not have time to go into market making, but the market makers who are the group that we trade with will simply just offer more units to the market mm. when they need it. So we've had situations where a brand new fund, $5 million on day one, on the second day has had $10 million invested. How can that be? Because it isn't even $5 million because more units are offered to the market in that case. Yeah. So this one's hot off the press from Simone, Elon, and you are a big sneakers fan. <laughs> she asks, sneakers versus shares, what differences are there when trading physical and the digital? <laughs> so I think I actually uh, read quite recently you have 30 pairs of shoes. I think I've got more now. <laughs> I think I've got more. We'll I've probably probably tracked the body. So I am a tragic when it comes to sneakers. It's probably just the fact that I'm just looking back on the good old days of Basel with Michael Jordan and Scott yeah, yeah, yeah. obviously epically portrayed in The Last Dance recently on the, on the ESPN. Yeah, great. I think that the differences between trading anything digital and physical is, is number one, Usually, digital things are a lot more efficient. The market is a lot more efficient. Now, the sneaker market is actually quite efficient. What I mean by efficient is that you kind of know the price before you make the trade. Like with, with, with ETFs and digital assets, like the price is incredibly discoverable. It's always there every single day. You're not going to really do a great deal. With sneakers, the fact is you can still do a good deal. There is information asymmetry out there where you kind of there's a lot of really smart sneaker guys, but still some people sell a sneaker that I see that's just way too cheap and I'll jump on it. <laughs> not, because I want to, not because I want to resell it, if I could, but because I like it. So I think that's probably the difference. So yeah, it's, it's also obviously a lot more personal in a way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, although there are now opportunities to use exchanges to, to yeah, trade yeah. sneakers. What's the biggest one? Um, Don't book it, mate. Yeah, yeah. StockX. StockX, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so the other thing about that is that physical goods, you know, they can have little issues with it. Yeah. The ETF, you don't have to say, look, is it shiny or not? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and then in terms of the sort of question as to one of my recent best pickups, <laughs> that's really for the sneakerheads, my recent best pickups. But what are my recent best pickups? Look, I've had a lot in recent times. Just, you know, I think maybe COVID's like kept me under the ground too much. I'm an Air Jordan guy, definitely an Air Jordan guy, particularly the Series 1 Air Jordan. I think this is an awesome, awesome shoe. I've been really strong in buying what are known as the off-white Jordan collaboration. Okay. I've bought a lot on it, sort of nerdy, but um, but yeah, that, that those are some really great, great sneakers that I bought and I can go on for, for a time. Maybe we'll do another podcast. Yeah, let's do a yeah, yeah, yeah. full <laughs> webinar on sneakers. <laughs> <laughs> so we've probably got time for a couple more before we close out. So just a shout out to those that have asked questions, you will be receiving merch. So thank you very much for sending those in so far. So the next question comes in from Scott. And Scott has asked, if an ETF tracks the ASX 50 and I invest $50 in it, is, is it $1 in each of those 50 companies? So it's a great basic question and I'm glad with that. So no, it depends. The answer just depends. But if we use the ASX 50, each index uses a different approach to how it weights, what proportion of each stock is in that particular index. And as it happens, the ASX 50 
uses what's known as a market cap weighting. So it takes the 50 largest stocks in Australia by market cap, largest market cap of the of the whole market was I don't know the Commonwealth Bank or CSL I think it is today, and that this is obviously all hypothetical numbers. Mm. And as it turned out, that of the total 50, CSL represented you know re represented 10% of that. Then when you actually put $50 in, you know you're putting $5, mm. not not $1. Mm. It's 10% of your 50. So it's weighted according to market cap in the case of the ASX 50. You have to look as there are different ETFs with different types of weighting. We call them weighting methodologies. Mm. But the vast majority are still market cap weighted. Yeah. So that's, which is actually a good thing because what it really means in most cases is that the winners run and you're ultimately owning more of the winners and the smaller guys that are losing, you own less of. So let's touch on that, Elon. So Chris has asked, how does rebalancing happen with ETFs? And you think about, you know, what was it? 25% of the S&P 500 is now the top and so you can yeah. imagine the remaining 494 stocks or whatever <laughs> don't uh, contribute much. But how does rebalancing happen within ETFs? Do you do it quarterly? Is yeah. It so again, it depends on which ETF you're, what index you're tracking. And so each index has got their own. If you think about it, the index provider is is the person giving us the instructions. Yes. So the S&P ASX 200 or the ASX the S&P 500. They will say, we've got a situation where we, in our index, rebalancing, actually re looking, looking at those, in that case, 500 stocks, picking the largest 500, doing it by market cap every quarter. And if that's the case with, for that particular index, the ETF will simply do the same thing. Mm -hmm. So literally on every quarter, like in that example, we will buy and sell the underlying securities to make sure that we're meeting the index weights that the index provider has provided to us. So yeah, so that, that is actually the true trading that the ETF manager does. So I think final question, given we've hit about an hour. So thanks for everyone for, for joining tonight. And final question comes in from Neil. It touches on the core and satellite investing philosophy, Elon. Where do thematic ETFs sit with a core satellite investment approach? And should you dollar cost average into them as regularly as standard market tracking ETFs? Yeah, cool. So thematic ETFs, for those of you that don't know what they are, are ETFs which try to track a particular theme. I've mentioned quite a few tonight already. Yeah. Cybersecurity, robotics, and artificial intelligence. There's a number of them, right, that we, that we have and other people have. The thing about thematic ETFs, what defines them is that they do not have a constraint on which country they invest in, and they also don't have a constraint on which sector they invest in. So, for example, a cybersecurity company might be characterized mm -hmm. as an IT company, but it could also be, for example, categorized as a consumer company. But we'd buy it in a thematic ETF because you're trying to get exposure to the theme, basically. So that's the thing. Now, thematic ETFs will typically be a lot more, will be a lot more concentrated to a theme, you know, just by definition. They'll also often have a very significant weighting to a particular sector. So to that end, they have a, they would have a higher level of risk in that way. So for most people, you know, unless you really feel very strongly about the future of, I keep on using the cybersecurity example. For most people, they would be treated as a satellite investment. Mm. Now, some thematic ETFs can be quite, you know, can be quite rounded and quite wholesome, but in many cases, they should be treated as satellite, I think. And as to whether you should dollar cost average into them as regularly as standard market tracking ETFs, I don't think there's any reason why you would take a different approach to that because dollar cost averaging has nothing to do with, you know, the size of the ETF or what you're investing in. Um, it may be the case that people are more uh, have got more particular conviction around thematic ETFs, so maybe they just want to buy at that time. 
but I don't feel there's any reason why you can't dollar cost average into, into thematic ETFs. But it probably wouldn't be advisable for most people to have a core of your portfolio, which is all thematic ETFs, unless you buy so many of them that it ends up becoming a core in the first place. Yeah, but they're a great, exciting part of, of the ETF industry and they've really grown very, very, very well. Yeah, I imagine a lot of people are buying biomedical thematic ETFs right about now. Yeah, the drug, <laughs> our, drug, our drug is D-R-U-G, the healthcare ETF. I mean, yeah. people want to get exposure to Johnson & Johnson and Gilead Sciences and all these guys. So. I mean, given we haven't spoken about COVID, I know you want to wrap it up, but I love to. <laughs> if people were thinking about rather than trying to pick a winner in the, the race for a vaccine and all of that stuff, do thematic ETFs make sense to just say healthcare will benefit from this moment or are there things that people should be thinking about before just making the COVID bet on, on a product like drug? Yeah, no, I think, I think it's much easier to take a view on a sector doing well than picking the stock. It's yeah. like it really is close to gambling when you're trying to pick a particularly a biotech oh, stock. Especially when you're talking about who's going to come up with a vaccine yeah. first. Yeah. 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 Who's to say it's not going to be Johnson & Johnson, right? one of the biggest companies in the world, GlaxoSmithKline, or who's to say it's going to be a small business? So I think that you know, if you have a view that that the healthcare sector will generally benefit because not only COVID's happening, but then the past post-COVID environment is going to be, people are going to be crazy about their health. Oh, the world right? So the I think healthcare is like a really phenomenal um, secular, we call it sort of secular growth, like a structural growth thing. So yeah, that's that. But then the other thing about COVID is just thinking a bit more broadly. And this is really the reason why technologies like NASDAQ stocks mm -hmm. have done so well, because if you think about it, their businesses are good and they're only getting stronger because who isn't buying online shopping? Like yeah. Who's not using Facebook? who's not using you know, Google more than ever before, right? So Netflix. So the other way to track to sort of play a theme like a COVID or anything like that, which is a huge global thing that will be around for, for years to come in our minds is buying things that are more, perhaps slightly more broadly defined sort of related to COVID, you know? So yeah, but that's yeah. Let's just hope the whole COVID thing passes over and we're sitting here in, I don't know when, couple of months time, <laughs> it's just a memory, but uh, the moment is obviously it's ongoing and going, doesn't it? Well, yeah, hopefully the next time we get together, we don't have to be live virtual, it yeah. can just be live yeah. and people can pepper us, pepper you with questions yeah. in person. Live and virtual. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, Elon, thank you very much for your time. As always, it's been very enjoyable, full of knowledge and wisdom that I'm sure a lot of you out there have benefited from this evening. So also a big thank you to you all for joining, taking the time out of your evening to uh, listen to what we have to say, and I hope you got a lot out of it. This won't be the last virtual event that we do pending COVID, but uh, look, very much appreciate it. As we said, those of you who have sent in questions and uh, were lucky enough for us to answer them we'll send you through some stuff in the mail once we get your contact details but until then head to equitymates.com for more information we will be sending out this recording via email so keep an eye on your inbox uh, and you'll get this full session coming straight to you so very much appreciate you joining us and uh, we look forward to joining you again at some point bye Great. thanks a lot Thanks for listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast, a production of Equity Mates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances, or goals. The host of Equity Mates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.